Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our discussion of whether stories are bad for us. Uh, If you haven't heard the first episode, you should probably go back and listen to that. Uh, It's where we first discussed what got us interested in this topic and general thoughts about ways that though, Robert, you and I, we both love narratives, love stories, love fiction, that stories might not always be great for human civilization. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird thing to think about. But but then again, like part of it is because I I look back especially on certain times in my life where like I prized narrative above uh, anything that was happening in real life, you know? Oh, like yeah. like a great book was an escape. A fictional um, book. Yeah, a great great fictional book was an escape. Though a great nonfiction book can also be a, a tremendous escape too, but I specifically remember escaping into into various novels. And it was it, there was something so comforting about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it, there's a similar there's there's something similar occurring when we have these negative examples of people escaping into narrative, though it might not be the pure um, alternate narrative of say life on another planet or in a, an imagined age, but just a a different version of reality in which things are simplified and made more story shaped mm-hmm. with more key. With, with with clearer villains and heroes and some sort of uh, of uh, eventual comeuppance and uh, and redemption. So we should brief recap. In the last episode, we talked about uh, this idea that maybe stories aren't so great for us. That we were inspired to talk about this because I read a uh, read an interview with a Duke University professor and philosopher of science named Alex Rosenberg, who's written a book about how uh, how. Well, number one, about how we're wired to prefer stories over other types of receiving information, and then also about how stories cloud our our views of history, and that a lot of times we don't appreciate what actually happened in the past because we read a sort of personal narrative about history that has characters with motivations, and we think we identify with those characters, and we you know we engage in theory of mind, we put our brain inside their brain, and we think we understand history in this way, but in fact. It just leads to a lot of misunderstanding and and false certainty about why things happened in the past. Right. And then sometimes about what's happening in the present and in the future. Yeah. Because uh, he specifically points to the science of global warming and how there's a tendency to, to uh, for, for, for the science of global warming to, to lose out to the narrative of global warming. And this wouldn't be an issue if the narratives were closely aligned with the science. But as we see, sadly continue to see, the the problem is that some of the narratives about global warming run counter to what the science is telling us and have a a different um, agenda. Right. I mean, of course, the clear scientific consensus is global warming is absolutely real. It's going on right now. It's, it is primarily driven by human behavior, and that behavior is primarily the emission of greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. And that if we want to do something to stop it, we should stop the emission of greenhouse gases and maybe even at this point try to find a way to remove them from the atmosphere if that's even possible. Uh, but, you know, there, there are lots of very fun narratives that tell you something else, that tell you it's a Chinese hoax or that tell you, you know, there's some evil cabal of globalists who want to do X, Y, and Z, and they're using this scam to, you know, I, I don't, you know, keep up with all what all that stuff is, but you, you know where you can go to find it. Right. YouTube. 
<laughs> predominantly. Uh, you know, but part of, but a lot of this, uh, in, as, as Alex uh, Rosenberg uh, describes, you know, a lot of it comes down to the fact that we're we're using old tricks. Uh, these are basically sort of shortcuts in our perception of reality, and that all of our, you know, the reality that we have is not like pure objective reality. Uh, like, of course not. Yeah, like well, one of the like fun little, I'll go, in, I'll go ahead and even call it a mind blower that he drops in that uh, uh, Ideas with Paul Kennedy episode was that, you know, that, that, that we live in a world that doesn't actually have odors or colors. Right. That's just our sense world. That's our way, uh, that's the way that uh, our, our bodies and our minds uh, interpret the stimuli. Yeah, there is actually light and there are actually volatile molecules, mm-hmm. but the idea of color is, something that happens only in the brain. Right. We constantly err in this perception of the world because it's adaptive. Uh, and it's certainly not maladaptive. But you can see how it stands in the way of a, you know, proper understanding of objective reality if, if it mattered. Like if, I don't know, if some fantastic scenario presented itself. Say there was an alien invasion. Mm. That's generally a good one to go for. Oh, yeah. And the key to defeating the aliens was a perception of reality that did not uh, uh, that did not rely on an understanding of reality in which uh, uh, odors and uh, colors exist. You know, we're doomed. Yeah, we would we would be doomed because we have this this built in handicap that has never been maladaptive up until now. And so one of the things he's arguing is that is that storytelling was adaptive early on. But then is perhaps increasingly maladaptive as we as, as civilization becomes more complicated. Oh yeah, I mean th- this is one of the clear things that we've discovered through you know the the recent decades of uh, psychology and neuroscience focusing on bias and misperception. You know that that's been uh, been a key to to what we've learned about the brain in the past few decades is that. We we have just all kinds of ways of getting reality wrong, right? And a lot of this is based on heuristics. You know, simple. Quick, fast, dirty rules that the mind uses to try to come up with an answer without doing too much work. And in fact, you can more often get a more accurate answer by using a slow, laborious, mechanical process of figuring out what's true. But usually it doesn't make sense to do that in real life because you just don't have the time and the energy. So we use heuristics and we get maybe sometimes roughly right answers, maybe sometimes really wrong answers. Mm -hmm. But in most scenarios, it doesn't matter enough for for us to actually change our behavior. And story-based thinking about reality, I think, is one of these heuristics. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one thing that came to my mind was how, like, some of my earliest memories, some of them are definitely memories. But other things are not so much memories, but me remembering stories about something that happened when yes. I was very young. Yeah. And those become a sort of memory. Yeah. They, they become a kind of false memory of something that that happened, but to what degree it happened like the story, I'm not sure because I, we do this all the time, right, where we take we, – oftentimes we'll take an external story or just like the general shape of a story, use that to interpret something that happened to us, mm-hmm. and then that becomes the memory. We are remembering the story that we came up with about the thing that happened as opposed to any anything like a purely – objective understanding of what occurred. Right. And so a classic example of this that I was just thinking about is when you sort events into a structure of rising tension, mm-hmm. you notice how like you could you could like take a number of events that happened over a course of different days or even different weeks and were really not all that related, but you're telling a story maybe about how you started, you know, why you're feeling down right now mm-hmm. and you you 
introduce like one thing that went wrong and then another thing that went wrong at a different time and you you escalate the tension on the story like you would if you're sh showing the increasingly dangerous obstacles that a hero must face in their journey. Right. Sometimes the things that we pick out to put into that story to be like the set pieces of the story might not be the real causes and effects of what we're trying to explain with the story, why you're actually feeling down now. You don't necessarily know why you're feeling down now. Yeah, there are a number of reasons that we've discussed on the show that uh, that are not related to um, uh, so much to something going on in the mind, but something going on, say, uh, with your gut bacteria, oh, et cetera. Yeah. And of course, we've also discussed on the show how even an outright lie can impact how we think about something. Um, uh, you know, something that's not even presented as a possible truth. Right. But if we hear it enough times, it can become part of our understanding of reality. Yeah, the illusory truth effect. Mm -hmm. you, you hear something enough, you start to kind of think it's true even if you should know better. And so like th that uh, situation as well as just this sort of holding our life up to other examples, be it little biographies or myths or motion pictures that we've seen um, – it, it reminds me a bit of, um, of something that's discussed in Marseille Iliade's The Myth of the Eternal Return or Cosmos and History. Mm -hmm. It's a book I've, I've talked about on the show before. It's kind of a, you know, an important uh, text in religious studies. And in this, the author dis discusses how humans uh, would have situated themselves within cyclical time. Uh, the idea here being that that ancient people thought of, of time as more as cyclical as opposed to linear, mm -hmm. not something that has a beginning and an end that ultimately follows sort of the uh, the ups and downs of a narrative plot, but is more of just a continual cycle. I guess yeah. more like a sitcom in that respect, right? Uh, as a, a sitcom rather than blockbuster. And so the idea here is that ancient people would have viewed time as cyclical and that all important acts in life were ultimately things that were revealed by the gods and that all humans did was engage in acts and rituals of repetition. So... I don't know, there's something that might define you in life, like say something that is associated with with being a, uh, a parent or being a, a warrior or being a, uh, you know, a craftsman, an artisan, what have you. Mm -hmm. Like these things are only important because a god did them or some sort of divine figure did them. Mm -hmm. And then you were just repeating those things. Um, a, a quote from the book, an object or act becomes real only insofar as it imitates or repeats an archetype. Hmm. But then again, the move to linear time or one-way time allows for a different sort of narrative structure to emerge uh, and to take uh, root in life, myth, and religion. Tales of fall and ultimately redemption. And ultimate justice. Yeah. And this uh, is, in, in Eliade's estimation, negative in that it allows for the terror of history, the realization that we keep falling and failing and suffering, not because of divine acts or something set in motion by the gods for repetition, but because of our own failings. Uh, so we've abandoned mythical thought, he argues, uh, and are confronted with this modern terror, these modern anxieties because of this way that we view time. And, uh, and ultimately kind of place it in a narrative structure. Huh. And our understanding of what has come before does color what comes, comes, comes later. I mean, the whole uh, – go back to the idea of, you know, those who, uh, uh, who, who uh, forget history are doomed to repeat it. Um, also reminds me of a quote from uh, Soren uh, uh, Kierkegaard uh, from Repetition. And I ex actually, I, I encountered this quote for the first time uh, in the intro to uh, uh, 
Alain Rogrelet's novel, Repetition, uh, but it goes like this. Repetition and recollection are the same movement, only in opposite directions. For what is recollected has been, it is repeated backwards, whereas repetition, properly so called, is recollected forward. Well, that does tend to suggest, I mean, a- another way of thinking about the possible effects of narrative on our lives is that uh, if you tell a certain kind of story about yourself, do you make it more likely that you do a similar kind of story in the future? Right. Is it a story about what I was or who I am or who I will be? And I think that can be instructive to a certain extent, right? Like I am a good person. I am a moral person and therefore I have acted morally and I will act morally, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But another thing that I think is really important about the psychology of storytelling is just the power that stories – now, when you're not even talking about self-narrative, you're Mm -hmm. just talking about narratives, external narratives, fictional stories, narratives like we were talking about with global warming. Uh, Somebody wants to tell a story about an evil conspiracy to push this hoax on people. That kind of story can be incredibly persuasive and powerful. Stories have the power to persuade for good and evil, and this can be a really frightening power because they often seem so much more persuasive than good evidence. Right. Uh, like if you're a lawyer – I mean it's a truism among lawyers, right, that if you – if you're doing a court case and the evidence is against you, if you tell a good enough story, you still might win the jury over. Right. That often, like, presenting a case to a jury is about telling a believable story. And how believable the story is might not always correlate to how good the evidence is. And so there's plenty of evidence that stories have persuasive power that, uh, you know, that they that a lot of this is applied like within the business world. You know, you've probably seen people doing business presentations or giving mm-hmm. TED Talks or something like that. And they go up and the first thing they do is they tell a story. I want to tell you a story about a young man who had a dream and that man was me. And, you know, but they tell you a story and it's got a narrative arc. It's got obstacles that the character must face. They've got desires. They've got emotions. You, you seek to have emotional engagement between the audience and the character. And that supposedly helps people pay more attention to what you're talking about. It helps people retain more information from what you said, and it helps you persuade people to your point of view, which I guess is all contingent on, uh, you know, whether the ultimate point of what you're saying is good or not. I mean, you can use this for good and you can use it for quite evil purposes. Yeah, uh, for instance, on the the idea of narrative for good, we've touched on some of the positives of of telling stories already, but, uh, you know, it's worth noting that narrative is sometimes part of, you know, of an actual, like, clinical healing practice, uh, such as narrative expressive writing. For instance, a May 2017 study in uh, Psychosomatic Medicine, Journal of Biobehavioral Medicine, found that that writing about their emotions and creating a meaningful narrative of their experience uh, may reduce the harmful cardiovascular effects of stress related to marital separation in patients. Okay. Um, uh, but, but uh, you know, more specifically, like just the idea that engaging in narrative can be used in a thera- therapeutic process. Um, I, I also ran across um, some notes on the pros and cons of storytelling from uh, Ethics of Storytelling Narrative uh, Hermeneutics, History, and the Possible by Hannah Meritoja, uh, professor of comparative literature uh, at the University of uh, Turku in Finland. And she points out that the narrative gives us a sense of what is possible within a culture and what could be possible. Mm-hmm. And, and this is all good. You know, we see empowering stories and we think that could be me or, yeah. you know, I can do something like that, you know. I, sure. I'm, maybe I'm not going to go and en- engage in a boxing match, but this boxing movie has shown me that if I have the eye of the tiger, then uh, nothing I can go stop. ask for a raise. Exactly. 
Um, and then also it, it shapes what we think a good life is, what gender norms are, what success is. And this can be positive or negative. Uh, I mean, it, it really can run 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 the gamut here. Yeah. Oh, I think we tend to – some research shows that we tend to identify with characters in narratives much the same way we would end up identifying with people in the world. And, you know, when you see people in the world acting a certain way, their values can be contagious, their mm -hmm. cultural values, their moral values. And I think the same can be true in narrative. Absolutely. Uh, she, she also points to uh, the Nazi regime as giving us a – a good example of, of what can happen when a strong narrative is developed to embolden one people but at the expense of others. Nazism was a story. Mm -hmm. It was a storytelling exercise. Right. You know, it was telling a story about a great people, you know, who, who had once been great and who were now being attacked uh, by a conspiracy and parasitized by people who were unworthy and that they would rise from this and become great once again. Yeah, it was – in a way, it was kind of like a, a catastrophic reboot uh, project of a culture. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, so... Uh, but also attempting to achieve what they... This story, they, this mythology they had about past greatness. Exactly, yeah. But speaking of the Nazis, she also points out that we have to be careful not to demonize uh, evildoers too much in our narrative understanding of past horrors in order to, quote, properly engage with the conditions that made the atrocities possible. Well, this is getting back to Alex Rosenberg, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that often... Thinking of history as a narrative and seeing, you know, villains and heroes and stuff in history causes us to fail to appreciate, say, material conditions that brought brought about events. Right. You know, when you think about history as stories of characters who succeed against all odds, all that and all that, and you and you get into the you you engage in theory of mind and you think about what they were thinking, you stop thinking about what the price of bread was this week and how that influenced mm -hmm. what was possible within a polity. Absolutely. And you know, with with the Nazis particularly, uh, you know, it's interesting to look at just cinema, right? Mm -hmm. And and certainly we have we have so many examples, even very entertaining examples of just like pure storybook Nazis. Right. The Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great example of this. Like the Nazis are just straight up cardboard villains, and within the context of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's arguably okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, how do you treat characters like this in other works? Because you you know, to to her point here, you want to make sure that there is a, that human element there, that people are realizing that these are not demons. These are people, and therefore their errors are our potential errors. Yes, I think that's very important to see them as people so you can realize, like, this could happen again. Other people could become like this. Right. So, like, say you look at a character, say, like Joseph Mengele, and you want to be able to say he was not a monster, he, you know, not an inhuman monster. He was a human who did monstrous things. And let's look at how that came to be. Yeah. Um, you know, how, so as not to create more of them. Right. But then, but then also, you, I guess you do kind of run the risk of like making characters like this too relate. Like you don't want to make them too sympathetic either, right? Well, right. I mean, you don't want to make it seem like, hey, you know, it wouldn't be so bad to be like him. Right. You don't want to lose the object lesson of right. the experience. Uh, so, yeah, it, I think that's just one example of how, how complicated uh, choosing the form of narrative to place over history or individuals, how, how problematic it can be, even with something that is relatively straightforward by making sure that mass murderers and, uh, and you know, xenophobic um, uh, individuals are, are properly vilified but vilified to the appropriate degree. And in specifically the appropriate way. I mean, yes. it's uh, – yeah, 
coming up with stories is some it's a, it's a task on which you have great responsibility on your shoulders mm-hmm. and people take it so lightly i mean you notice the almost it's almost like the level of responsibility goes exactly backwards i tend to notice <laughs> when people are talking about history in terms of uh you know minute fact matter about history the you know, the weekly price of bread in a place throughout mm-hmm. history, they, they tend to exercise a lot more caution than people who are talking about history in a way that tells a narrative story. I mean, I guess you're always going to have people doing both, but it seems like the person who's putting together a narrative that reads like a story with characters, they should be exercising 10 times as much caution as the person just collecting, you know, factual minutia about history. We've got it exactly backwards. The, the way people sling narratives about history is sometimes just breathtaking. Yeah, like one example, not 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 to discuss this film in too much detail, but uh the the adaptation of uh 300. The um, Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I was thinking more about just like, you know, the dude shooting his mouth off about what the Nazis were really about, you know, but right. but, but but what you're saying is correct too. Like that's a film that is uh, I don't know, there's like three different ways of looking at it, I guess. Like like one is that like this is clearly a case where you took a you took a, a an historical um, uh, military engagement mm-hmm. and then you just made one side like the ultra ultra masculine heroes and the other side you made into like actual mutated debased demons uh-huh. and then and then said that they were the Persians right <laughs> you know an entire culture an entire people mm-hmm. and that there is a that that's inherently reckless to do that. Uh, and then it's uh, I've seen it defended by saying, well, the whole story is as told by this individual, and therefore it's supposed to be because it's ultimately about the distortions of storytelling. Mm, I, I don't know to what extent that truly holds up. I, I mean, I can see the role for that kind of story that's told by an unreliable narrator, but I don't remember that really coming through. Uh, yeah, I don't. Th- the... I don't remember that either. I remember at the time initially kind of like naively experiencing it, I think the same way that it was perhaps intended. Like, here's just a crazy story where we made history more like Lord of the Rings, you know, and it had uh-huh. goblins and demons and all oh, that's that and looked muscles. really cool. And muscles. And, 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 and muscles. abs for miles. <laughs> I, I significantly doubt that I would have that same experience today. I think I would feel very conflicted about it. I mean, in a way, it's I, I feel it's going to be hard to go through life not spinning occasionally at least spinning tidy, bold narratives about history that you have not really properly thought through the implications of because mm-hmm. that's, that's just how we tend to think about past events. Yeah, and, and we get I, caught up in story. We get caught up in the power of narrative. I was just thinking I've probably sort of, even though I've been trying to be careful, I've probably sort of done that today already. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, though I try not to create heroes and villains unnecessarily, but <laughs> I, one of the problems with creating heroes and villains in uh, in history is – uh, especially like when you go try to create a hero in history is you, you almost inevitably find out stuff that like complicates your your idea of them as a hero. Right. Like, oh, this was the good guy at some point in history. And then you read into their biography and it's like, oh, yeah, did some stuff that you wouldn't you wouldn't write a hero doing in your standard uncomplicated adventure movie. Right. Or just in the like looking up the personal getting too too acquainted with the personal history of, say, contemporary heroes. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, I really like this particular artist or actor or musician. <laughs> you're doomed. Don't look it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you're, you're ultimately, it seems like you're uh, sometimes, it seems like often your best uh, uh, hope is that they just don't have a lot out there about their lives. <laughs>
All right, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, uh, we will dive deeper into the world of narrative. All right, we're back. So I wanted to look at a bit at the idea of uh, narrative and neuroscience. Uh, there, there's all kinds of evidence that the brain is fundamentally oriented toward producing stories, consuming stories, seeing the world in terms of stories. Stories appear to have a kind of special purchase on our neurological architecture. Uh, so I just wanted to mention a few weird findings about how narratives work in the human brain. And so one thing I came across is the work of the Princeton University psychologist and neuroscientist Uri Hassan. And so Hassan has carried out brain imaging research to see exactly what happens in the human brain when we're engaged in various forms of communication. So he studies communication broadly, but one of those types of communications that he's studied is what happens when we're being told a, a story, like a personal narrative, or even like a, like a fictional story, like an episode of a TV show. So repeatedly, Hassan has found through fMRI that when people engage in successful verbal communication with one another, their brain activity tends to be to become physically aligned or coupled, meaning records of the physical uh, activity of their brains show similarities or complementarity across space and time. So like you brain image two people who are having a conversation and you will see this interesting kind of brain activity ping pong where mm. their, their brains are almost sort of locked in sync and reacting in kind. Interesting, revealing that the relationship between storyteller and the listener is is more of a like a melding of minds. Uh, yeah, in the same way that say like uh, people singing together, engaging in a rit ritual, are also kind of like melding their their mental states. Yeah, absolutely. So Hassan has argued that communication in general is quote a single act performed by two brains. I mm. like that. Uh, but yeah, what so what happens when that communication takes the form of a story? Uh, and so I was reading an article where, where Hassan himself writes about his research on this. Uh, so he wrote, quote, In one experiment, we brought people to the fMRI scanner and scanned their brains while they were either telling or listening to real-life stories. We started by comparing the similarity of neural responses across different listeners in their auditory cortices, the part of the brain that processes the sounds coming from the ear. When we looked at the responses before the experiment started, while our five listeners were at rest waiting for the storyteller to begin, we saw the responses were very different from each other and not in sync. And Robert, I've attached some images for you to see here. Uh, he continues, however, immediately as the story started, we saw something amazing happen. Suddenly, we saw the neural responses in all of the subjects begin to lock together and go up and down in a similar way. Hmm. So you're seeing this synchronization of physical records of brain activity as the story starts. Now, when people's uh, different brain responses become synchronized or locked in response to speech, like I was talking about, this is known as neural entrainment. And what Hassan's research found is that you could entrain some parts of the brain without a coherent story. So if you just play the audio of the story backwards, and they did that to try to produce many of the same sounds as the story but without any of the meaning, mm -hmm. it entrains the auditory cortices but nothing else. So that's just, you know, the part for detecting sound. Yeah, I'm just listening to noise, yeah. 
And then when you play whole words but scramble them out of order, this entrains the auditory cortices and the, quote, early language areas, but nothing else. Then when you play whole sentences that make sense individually but don't form a coherent narrative, you get entrainment in the previous areas plus areas associated with processing language and grammar, but nothing else. But then finally, when you actually play a story that has narrative coherence, that has an arc where you're actually telling a coherent story, you get similarities and alignments across listeners in areas of higher brain function like the frontal cortex and the parietal cortex. And as much as, like Robert, you and I often talk about the particular powers of languages and how things can be lost in translation, it turns out that some important neurologically salient features of stories are generally not lost in translation. Mm. Uh, So Hassan has also been involved in research that shows that if you take a real-life story originally from a Russian speaker and you translate it into English and the authors specify, quote, we tried to preserve the content of the narrative while reducing the structure similarities across languages, unquote, uh, they found that Russian speakers and English speakers also show aligned patterns of brain activation when listening to the story, quote, beginning just outside early auditory areas and extending through temporal, parietal, and frontal cerebral cortices. So this means that it doesn't have anything to do with people sitting in a room listening to English. You take a story in one language, translate it to a different language, and play it to people in those different languages, and you will still see this strange brain imaging alignment. So it's like we can pick up on the shape of story even if the, 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 the actual language is uh, one we don't, we don't understand. Yes. And so this research gets even weirder. So Hassan and colleagues have done F- fMRI scanning on people watching TV shows like the BBC's Sherlock. Did you watch that one, Robert? I've watched a few episodes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it can be pretty engrossing. Uh, so they had people watch Sherlock while getting brain scanned and they later scanned subjects in a dark room retelling the story of what they had watched out loud. Then later, they played back a recording of one of those subjects describing the story from the Sherlock episode to someone who hadn't seen the shows. And this was pretty interesting. People in all three scenarios showed some alignment of higher-order brain function that played out in similar ways scene by scene, despite the fact that these three different – that they were doing these three totally different sensory tasks, watching a TV show – remembering a show you've already watched and then listening to somebody describe the plot of a TV show to you, you'd still get like when somebody describes a particular scene in the show, you'd get some alignment of brain activity that's similar to what happens when people watch that scene. Hmm. And I think this cross-media alignment suggests that brain activity can be aligned by the content of the story itself, that it doesn't necessarily depend on whether you're watching with your eyes or listening or remembering. The brain seems to be at least at some level responding strongly to stories as stories. And this makes me think back to like the idea of the story of narrative as being like just a basic survival adaptation, like the ability to – to convene uh, with other members of, say, your tribe and and get 
info, get intel about what is happening in the immediate surroundings or what, and what may happen. Well, yeah, it seems like stories, they, they like, they suddenly, they just harness our attention mm-hmm. and we lock into them and it's almost as if the brain has sort of built-in story recognition functions that work different than just receiving verbal information of any other kind or watching somebody do something. Right. If there's a character I, to identify with and they're facing a plot, then something happens. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. All right, now when thinking about neurochemistry and and how stories work in the brain, one of the things that comes up the most on internet searches about this is we're coming out of the lab with the neuroeconomist Paul J. Zak about uh, narrative experience, attention, empathy, and uh, specifically the hormone oxytocin. Now, oxytocin, unfortunately, is one of those uh, th- one of those things. I think I mentioned this in the last episode, where sometimes a story about neuroscience or a story about neurochemistry can become radically oversimplified mm-hmm. and misrepresented, especially in the popular press. Right. You may have seen articles using, the, you know, the dreaded nicknames, the love drug, the cuddle uh-huh. chemical, the moral molecule. It, it turns out the truth about this, uh, this hormone is, is much more complicated. There's still so much about it we don't even know yet. It's a complicated story of what it's doing in our brains and in our bodies. But I did want to at least take a look at this angle since there's a lot of stuff out about it, uh, a lot of stuff out there about it in, in, in science media. So w- what do we know about oxytocin from existing research? Uh, first of all, it's a molecule that's syn- synthesized in the hypothalamus in mammal brains that has both physiological and psychological effects. Uh, oxytocin levels can be sampled in the blood. It, it does. It, it's produced in the brain, but it does get into the bloodstream or by mat- measuring patterns of uh, stimulation in the vagus nerve. Classically, it's associated with pregnancy, childbirth, and nursing, uh, contributing to physiological effects such as uterine contractions before birth and the milk ejection reflex during nursing. It's also highly associated with mother-infant bonding, uh, but the effects do appear to go beyond this, and this is where we get into some of the uh, the the more difficult territory. It does appear to play a vast and complicated role in human social behavior. Uh, some of the earliest research on its social effects were that oxytocin is important in establishing trust and cooperation between humans. We appear to experience elevated levels of oxytocin when someone shows us that they trust us or when somebody does something kind for us. And these findings really shaped a lot of what people thought about oxytocin in the past 20 years. Yeah, it kind of it kind of takes on this role of like this kind of magical elixir or wine that your body kind of squirts out when it's doing things that align properly with sort of uh, you know reproductive uh, child rearing or social health. Yeah, exactly. It got this reputation of being you know quote the moral molecule or something that or something mm-hmm. that even could be given to people in doses that would make them more moral or something like that. And and it turns out the truth is much much more complicated than that. Right, but but of course we see why that narrative is uh, is so appealing. Uh, right, I mean, Lord it's knows it's got a hero. It's yeah. got a hero, and we love a good narrative that involves a you know a, a, a pill based solution to something. Or in this case, I think it would be a nasal injection spray solution, which is even <laughs> better than a pill. Well, I do love a good nasal so, na- nasal injection solution in uh, in a narrative. Though I think actually the last thing I read about that was that there's actually some question about the extent to which nasal spray dosings of oxytocin really even take effect within mm. the body. 
but they're used in a lot of studies. So, uh, but anyway, this guy who's been behind a lot of the, the, the love drug moral molecule vision of oxytocin is this neuroeconomist, Paul Zak, who's, who's written on this subject a lot. And so his name pops up a lot when you read about storytelling and the brain and neurochemistry. And he has done some research on this. Like he's been involved in, uh, or at least him and his colleagues and his lab have been involved in research about, uh, say, subjecting people to narratives and testing blood oxytocin levels before and after they've they've experienced these narratives. And what they claim to find is that when you watch a story that's got a narrative arc, uh, mm-hmm. a classic example is like a story of a father talking about his son who's dying of cancer and and how to relate to his son. And it mm-hmm. like it has building tension and gets to a climax and then he overcomes his problems. Narratives like this increase our blood oxytocin levels, and this indicates that narratives cause oxytocin synthesis within the brain. And then he links this to all these ideas showing uh, that oxytocin leads to cooperation, causes people to donate more money to charities, and and all these things like that. So, And so the general thrust is that narratives can be used to trigger these neurochemical reactions that cause us to experience more generosity, to experience more cooperation, to be more charitable, to trust more, to give of ourselves, and that this happens naturally when we experience stories. And he he frames this motivation to take a pro-social, cooperative, self-sacrificing action after a narrative. Uh, But I remember after reading about some of this research, assuming the research holds up, I know this, as we've been saying, this some of this research has had plenty of critics, especially in how it's interpreted. Uh, but, you know, I also started to wonder if the inverse would be true. Like if it is true that watching stories tends to cause these neurochemical cascades that uh, that do in fact make us more likely to cooperate or something, would higher levels of oxytocin after watching a narrative also make you more motivated to go beat someone up if the story implied that you should? <laughs> I don't know, but I wonder – I mean, you could. I can imagine where it would be the case if you had if you had a work of, uh, say, uh, cinema that is ultimately inciting violence against some group, or um, uh, and, and clearly there have been uh, there have been films of this caliber. Exactly right. Now, this guy writes also a lot about like there are particular details he identifies as being most important in narratives that are salient in the uh, that are neurologically salient, including uh, having rising tension. So, like, there's a dramatic arc where things keep getting you know there's maybe a mystery or there's a problem to face, and the mm-hmm. tension ge- keeps getting ratcheted up and up. I, I'd say this correlates with conventional wisdom about what good good storytelling is like. You've got to keep escalating the tension. Yet I do think it's fascinating that like we know some of these things about storytelling and yet so many professionally told stories are still so bad (laughs) and like do not engage the, the audience emotionally at all and do not escalate tension this way. Like so many movies are just awful stories and yet the recipe is pretty simple. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes just a, like a simple story. If the simple story, the nice like trope-filled story, is just told semi-adequately mm-hmm. uh, at the heart of a film, it can make all the difference. Yeah, be it uh, be it like a really stylish film, or a film like even like a B film, like some of the a lot of the films that uh, that you and I go for, mm-hmm. like it, it, whether it is watchable or not. Well, whether you you know it's it's just it, it's at all you know a, a film you can engage with. A lot of it hinges on there just being sort of a basic story structure that is in place. And of course, many films manage to trip that up. Right. But uh, but but yeah, so as long as there's like the basic story there, you can you can forgive so much. 
There was a little turtle named Edna, and every day Edna swam out to the middle of the pond where she lived and met her friend, uh, the, uh, the turtle Ed. But one day she swam out to the middle of the pond and Ed was not there. Where did Ed go? You got a mystery. I don't want to brag, but I think I've already created more narrative tension than like than half of the action movies that exist. <laughs> yeah, probably so. But anyway, coming back to this and, and, and questioning some of what we've been talking about. So from what I've read, Zach repeatedly stresses in public speeches and popular articles uh, all the good things about this. I mean, uh, assuming that this research is somewhat valid, that there are these links between, you know, oxytocin synthesis in the brain and engaging in narratives that escalate tension and make you identify with the characters. If there is something to that, he, you know, he stresses this is a good thing, that it fosters cooperation and trust and compassion and – uh, charity and all that. But as we mentioned earlier, it's really worth noting that some of this public messaging that's been going on about oxytocin has been criticized for oversimplifying the role of oxytocin in human life, especially in focusing too much or too exclusively on its role in positive emotions and pro-social behaviors and for overstating what the research allows us to conclude at this point. Just one quick example, one of my favorite science writers, Ed Yong, wrote at least a couple of really good articles on this subject, including one in The Atlantic in 2015, and he points out that a more powerful emerging theory of the role of oxytocin in the brain, though we still don't know a whole lot about it, is that it increases the salience of social information. So it's not necessarily that it makes us trust or makes us love or makes us cooperate. It increases our attention and response to inputs that are socially relevant. Uh, and this might seem to cash out the fact that it has been linked to trust and all these other things. But it's also been linked to phenomena like uh, outgroup prejudice, willingness to be dishonest if it would protect the in-group, schadenfreude, <laughs> envy, boasting – or boasting or gloating. I mean, all these things that we don't think of as very good, positive social emotions or behaviors. Yeah, it, I, I guess one of the things to keep in mind is that, that I think it's true. You can you can take a read on on the human experience that we are chemicals, and uh, and a lot of what we do is governed by by chemical reactions, right? But it's not just one chemical, and it's not just one chemical reaction. Well, even when you focus on one chemical, it turns out that this one chemical has a, a, an extremely mm -hmm. strange range of effects that are probably highly context-dependent. You know, yeah. earlier, uh, I think in the last episode, we were talking about the importance of context on when a story matters and, and what its effects are. Uh, context is probably very uh, important on what the actual effects of oxytocin are. Again, I don't want to overstate what we know now about uh, about this hormone. But if it is something like uh, uh, like an, an, a neurochemical that increases the salience and increases our openness to and attention to socially relevant uh, incoming information, that could be very good or very bad, right? It might help you pick up on cues that, that allow you to cooperate with somebody, but it also might make you more socially paranoid and vulnerable to bullying and afraid that people hate you because of little signals you're picking up on. And that's just with this provisional idea that that's what it does. Ultimately, we don't know everything about what oxytocin does yet. So it is not just a love drug. It's not a cuddle chemical. Instead, it seems that it's, it's a hormone related to a suite of powerful, socially salient emotions and motivations. So we should definitely blast it up our noses is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, it's great for research to continue. Yeah, yeah. That. But don't conclude that, you know, you go out and dose all the dictators with a, with a nasal spray and we'll cure all the world's. Oh, I absolutely think we should dose all the dictators of the world with a nasal spray. 
but I just have different thoughts about what is the appropriate substance. (laughs) (laughs) So given all those massive caveats, I'm not quite sure what to make of this last line of evidence here. But if it is true that narratives increase levels of body oxytocin, and if it is true that that, uh, oxytocin increases the salience of socially relevant information, you can see how that would give narrative a lot of power as well. Essentially, it, it opens you up to being socially receptive to ideas and behaviors to to trigger motivations for action, not necessarily good ones, though maybe they could be good. I think it does bring us to, you know, helps to just drive home the point that, that narrative is something that's deeply ingrained in how we think, how we behave, and, and what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to go back to one of the um, uh, the uh, the experts that we mentioned in the first episode, uh, episode Carol McGranahan, I, I, she I believe argues that that essentially like our species is something like homo narrative or something to that effect, like uh-huh. that 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 that's how like just ingrained in us this this need for narratives and this desire to to think about narratives uh, truly is. We're we're homo deus ex machina. <laughs> but you know, at the same time, it's kind of like language in that, like, if you try to imagine a human without language, if you engage in in the denial of language, you were talking about a severe abuse, you know, or at least a severe negligence, and therefore to to, de- to deprive someone of uh, of stories of narrative, like it's it is equal parts unimaginable and monstrous. Like you would have to be like a diabolical, uh, you know, experiment in which yeah. you've denied somebody the, the, the this basis of of understanding the world. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I don't know what to do about this knowledge. I mean, I feel fairly convinced that Rosenberg is correct that narratives cloud our understanding of history and I guess necess- uh, necessarily of the present as well. Essentially, mm-hmm. thinking of things in terms of stories prevents us from understanding what's really happening with causes and effects in reality. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely correct. He's right about that. And yet I don't know what to do about it because I don't think we can we can like beat story impulses out of people. I don't know what to do other than to just say like, hey, be aware of this. Maybe maybe that'll help. Uh, yeah, we don't I, know it'll help. I but. think I think I think awareness is is the key. And in, in a way it's it's kind of uh, beautiful in its simplicity, right? Because this is ultimately the same thing that has been uh, been been preached in uh, in in uh, a few different religions, particularly in, in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. You know the idea that one that is a self awareness that has to take place. Like you have to be aware uh, that uh, of these various influences on your perception of of reality. And so, if we're aware of the dangers of narrative. Uh, as well as the benefits of narrative, then hopefully we can be in a better place to uh, properly navigate uh, these pitfalls. Here's one piece of practical advice, actually, that that does come out of this uh, research for me is if you're worried that a narrative is working on you, is is working on your brain in a way that may actually prevent you from, say, understanding the truth or doing the right thing or something like that, you know, if you're worried about a narrative's power over you, break your attention – This is the most powerful thing we can do Mm -hmm. in reaction to a narrative because the way the narrative maintains its grip on us is by holding our attention. Mm -hmm. If you just force yourself to look away and think about something else, it's often shocking suddenly how quickly the spell breaks. Have you ever noticed this? Like you're talking about focusing on something in your environment. 
Yeah, yeah. It could be in your environment. I mean, narratives take different forms. So it might be you're reading a book. It might be you're watching a video or a movie. It might be some, somebody's telling you something. Oh. Whatever it is, a lot of the power of the narrative is in keeping your attention wrapped. You are there. And you always have the power to break to break that attention, right? You can look at something else. You can focus on something else. You can think about something else. Oh, yeah. Like, and see and see see what happens when you come back. See yeah. if it was worthy of your attention in the first place. Well, that, that reminds me of something Galen Strassen said about, you know, consider the lilies of the field. Uh-huh. I mean, he didn't say that. He's quoting the Bible. But, right. uh, you know, it, like, it, or to go back to, uh, you know, various uh, meditative practices, like focusing on breath, coming back to my breathing, yeah. coming back to something that is not this... Uh, this uh, you know this 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 storm of narratives uh, about past and future and self and other and coming back to something as as basic and ultimately uh, you know, largely objective as what is my breath doing is it going in or is it coming out or what am I watching that bird doing you know I mean that's you know one of the reasons it's so calming to to uh, you know participate in nature to to observe nature I think that's a really good point and bringing it back to fictional narratives do you ever notice you might not agree but I feel like there's a counterintuitive process where I notice and understand the structure of movie plots better if I pay less close attention to the movie. Hmm. Like if I'm sitting with somebody watching a movie and we're occasionally like commenting or chatting back and forth and I'm Uh breaking my attention on the film, I actually have a clearer picture in my head of the shape of the story and where the beats are and all Mm -hmm. that. And I think that might be because I'm not, I'm not just, totally sucked in on the story and, and riding along with it, I'm being pulled out and I'm getting, I'm getting a zoomed out view by doing that. Interesting. I wonder if one could combat the potentially negative aspects of narrative by just anytime someone tells you a story, imagine Nicolas Cage in every role. <laughs> you know, because uh, I feel like increasingly nothing, nothing brings me out of a film like, uh, like a good <laughs> Nicholas Cage role. <laughs> and I know there's been kind of a Cage uh, uh, renaissance of late. But still, uh, you know, s- throw in something that kind of turns it on its head and makes it less of a, uh, of, of a narrative. I mean, maybe that's what we do when we say picture, picture the audience in their underwear. You know, like transform the narrative of what's happening into something that is lower stakes. I don't know. Picture Nicholas Cage in his pyramid in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, what what did Oh, I was trying to think what did I see him in that was so great recently? It was Mandy. Oh yeah, he was he was great in that, but at the same time um he is inherently distracting. <laughs> you know. Um I think that was maybe the right movie for him, but I I'm going to I'm actually going to maybe go against uh public opinion and say that I I wonder if it might have been a better film with maybe a slightly more nuanced performance in that role, but uh, I st- I'm still perfectly happy with what I got. Don't make me pull out my long chainsaw, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, well, there you have it. I'm sure everyone has something to add on this one because we all love stories. We all love different types of stories, and, and we're all dealing with, with various forms of narrative and self-narrative in our own lives. So we'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find links out to various social media accounts. You'll find a tab for our store where you can buy some cool merchandise. It's a fun way to support the show and, you know, get engaged with some of the ideas. But the best way to support our show is to just make sure that you have subscribed to us wherever you get 
Stitcher Podcasts. And then if they have some sort of mechanism for rating and reviewing us, uh, do that. Give us give us some stars. Give us some kind words uh, because that ultimately really helps out the algorithm and helps ensure that we get to uh, continue to keep uh, putting out uh, cool episodes like these. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's a new email address, contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.